Hello, my name's Russell Howcroft. I've lived a lot of lives. I've been an ad man, a CEO, a chair, an author, a panelist, and I currently co-host a radio show on 3AW. And I'm partner and chief creative officer at The Sayers Group. And I'm host of this podcast. Welcome to Conversations, a Sayers podcast. Throughout my time, I've learned that so much in life starts with, yep, a good conversation. And that's what we're going to do right here today. Okay, so our guest today on Sayers Conversations is Rachel Bajada. <laughs> Rachel <laughs> Bajada. Rachel Bajada. 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 That'll do. Rachel <laughs> Bajada, who of course is the founder and managing director of Noshu, which is really an amazing business. And we're going to get to Noshu soon. Now, Rachel, what we do is in our podcast, we want you to just love the experience. And part of that, of course, is being comfortable having a conversation. So what we like to do is we like to play you some audio, which I'm going to ask you to listen to, and then we're going to get you to pick the audio that is most evocative and gives you a great picture in your mind of where you love to have, where you love to have conversations. So let's go. That one? <laughs> Rachel. I still like the first one. The first one. Give us the first one. Yeah, I'm with you. Right? How good? I'm into that. So where about say that's obviously a fire. Where are you? On a really comfy lounge opposite a fire. Yeah, beautiful. Cannot be beaten. Okay, so let's imagine that that's where we are. We're but not it also could be raindrops. It's, well, hang on. Could be either. Maybe it's no, I can hear the fire crack- and rain. You, you can hear the crackling fire. Yeah, yeah, it feels like that to me. Anyway, it's cosy, right? And it's a, nice, a very nice place to have a chat. So imagine that you're not in a podcast studio. You're just hanging out. Okay. Um, and as a result, what do we do when we're around a fire? We have a fantastic conversation. And, and I hope um, we can learn some stuff. I'm very, very keen to find out all about, you know, Rachel. So, Rachel, you've got an incredible business. So let's just, I want, as much as you're willing, give me some numbers. I want to know how big the thing is. Go. You want to know how big it is? I do. All right. Well, we're roughly 30 million turnover at the moment. Okay. And how many SKUs? I think we're around about 40. And distributed where? Mostly, well, pretty much every major supermarket in the country. Coles, Woolworths, Independence, IGA, Metcash, that kind of thing, New Zealand. Best selling lines? Our low-carb bars. So they're like Cherry Ripe, Bounty, Snickers-style products without the sugar and the carbs. They taste amazing. Manufactured? All in Australia, 100%. Uh, at the one site? No, there's about nine of them. That's interesting. Mostly Victoria, a little bit in New South Wales. Um, and how do you distribute? Mm, the retailers either pick up from our warehouses, our DCs, our 3PLs, or we deliver to state-based DCs. So, yeah, I think you've already said this, but just clarify, nationwide? Yes. Amazing. Price-wise, where do you where do you sit in the pricing trees, they would say in marketing? We, we call it accessibly premium. I like it. So, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we definitely Depends try. on one's perspective. But, yes, tell me more. Yes, we, we, we don't want to be an elitist 
price point or an elitist brand. We're a brand for everyone. So we believe everyone should be able to afford to eat better and eat low-sugar food. So we do our best. Obviously, we'll never get to the price point of full sugar because sugar is really cheap. Yes. But, yeah, we're probably 30 to 40% more expensive than a conventional product. Um, presumably, this is all about the recipe then. So you, you, how did you get this right? Because, you know, like we've all tried um, non-sugar foods. They're not necessarily uh, a great taste. So tell us about your your journey to create a product which people want to purchase to the tune of 30 million bucks per annum. You want me to go all the way back? Yeah. All right. Here goes. <laughs> it all started with need, like a lot of good businesses do, really. Um, I grew up with t- uh, family members that had type 2 diabetes right. and probably mostly inspired by my grandmother and my mother's side. She was always a type 2 diabetic, insulin dependent, since I can remember. So she developed that before I was even born. Um, so I saw from a very, very early age the impacts of type 2 diabetes at family events and on her personally at Christmas time when the cakes and sweets would come out and what would happen with her blood sugar and it wasn't a very inclusive thing at all. Yeah. And my aunties and uncles went down the same path as they you know, developed adult onset and yeah. So obviously predisposed in the family. I think it's a Maltese thing too. That was going to be my next yeah. question. Is this a Maltese thing? I think it might be. There are there do, there do seem to be a lot of type two diabetics in so Malta. So we should explain to the listeners the why. Why did we all of a sudden go to Malta? So <laughs> so just explain the surname. Yeah, yeah, just explain the Malta thing. So yes, your family. Genetically, I'm yes, hundred percent Maltese. So right. both my parents are of Maltese descent. Yeah, my father was born there. My mother was born here. Yes. Um, my grandparents um, immigrated here probably around 1939. Um, and, yeah, the, the, there's a big story there. So I love it. No, <laughs> genuinely I love it. So now what is it about the Maltese flag? There is a cross on the Maltese flag because the entire... The cross. The George, because the entire island was awarded... It was awarded the uh, medal for bravery, mm-hmm. which is a medal which is normally awarded to individuals. But I think it was—I think it's the only country that's actually received a medal for bravery. Is that right? Look, I'm no um, Maltese historian, but I think you are right. Yes. Yeah, I, and it must be the most glorious. Do you go there for holidays? I've I've only been a few times. I lived in Europe for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lived in France for about two and a half years, and I couldn't handle the cold at winter time so I'd spend nearly every winter in in Malta it was sunny and 16 degrees so so good so back to the, okay so Europe was this when you were a adult were you working when you were in Europe yeah I moved there when I was 27 um, so I had I was sort of faced with that choice if I was working I was working at News Corp huh? in Sydney before that point doing well in my career enjoying my work but you know life is just kind of cushy and and what's the word? You know, you knew what to expect. It was predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wanted to challenge myself and travel. So I, I was faced with that decision of, okay, I've saved some money. I could buy the apartment I'm, I'm living in as a little investment or I could really push myself and use that money to travel for a few years yeah. and and see what happens. So I made that decision. I, I kind of regret not buying the apartment now. They're worth <laughs> quite a bit of money. <laughs> um, yeah, but. However, mm. yeah. I knew that if I managed to live overseas for a few years on my own and and made it work, especially in a country that where I didn't speak the language and didn't know anyone, didn't have a job, and I could make that happen, it would empower me to feel like I could kind of do anything after that, and that's what happened. Okay, and do you think so? Was that a plan, or was that something that you look back on and say that's what happened to me? Uh, it was it was partly planned. The, 
pushing myself was yes. planned. I forced myself to do that. I basically moved to Paris. I didn't know anyone. I didn't speak the language. I didn't have a job. I didn't even have a place to live. Oh, I just kind of turned up and went, right, let's do this. Whereabouts did you live in Paris? <laughs> Um, I started right in the centre of Paris in the um, in the second, mm-hmm. and then I lived in the seventeenth, and then I spent about six months in the south of France. My first job was for Grey Paris, actually. Grey, I was Grey help- as in the agency. Yes, Grey. yes. Grey. I, honestly, that was like a scene out of out, out of Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> yeah. My boss was a nightmare. It was it was yeah. Uh, I've worked. For I've the got French. some pretty crazy <laughs> stories. Yeah, good tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> screaming matches in the office, yeah. like it was really dramatic. Mm. Um, I was probably one of the only people to actually get a job in a in a French summer in August. So the CEO was, you know, he he was. Then it worked out. Very, very much into bringing into international internationals into right. the agency, and so I was quite lucky. Got a lucky break. South of France sounds interesting too. Where was that? Yeah, well, I so I only worked at Grey for about six months, and then I went, oh, this is not for me, and so I moved to the south, and that's where also where I learned most of my French. So after six months of being there, I was completely fluent. Okay, well, oh. near Aix en Provence, I was. Oh. So tell Nicely. us more. Axon Profonds is beautiful. Exactly where? Um, I'm just, you know, I like that part of the world. That's why I'm asking. There was a little town called Vernel. Vernel. Fantastic. That's what it was called. And what yeah. did you do there? Well, I had a little, I had a French boyfriend at the time. Great. So I stayed with him. Um, and I started working for myself. So I set up a little um, sort of media consulting agency helping start up. Um, website businesses, so social communities, etc., to commercialise, to translate to English, to build their social and online communities, and I ended up doing that for the rest of the time that I was there. Yeah. So I got really used to working for myself and being my own boss. <laughs> yeah. And so by the time I moved back, I was really ready to set something up on my own. So let's go back though, because prior to going to Paris, um, News Corp. So the News Corp experience must have. I'm assuming. You learned some stuff there um, that you've been able to apply. So just give us a bit of a feel for what you took out of being, uh, that. It's not necessarily a News Corp experience, although yours was. Just learning about the media. What do you reckon? Oh, look, I learned about the media, obviously, but I think I learned more about um, business and the, and the corporate world. Yeah. And it, it, I think it's important for people to have a good stint at a big corporate because it teaches you bureaucracy yeah. um, and d- diplomacy and how, and how to make that work for you. Yes. And, and how, it, how the whole system works. And I think that they're really valuable life lessons. So tell us about how the system works. Give us some insight into Well, it. I found it frustrating because there's a lot of red tape, right? Yeah, and yeah. It's, you know, especially for women, it's hard, it's hard to be promoted. You see people around you being promoted and you're like, why did they get that job? Right. I could have done that. Okay. So... Yeah, I, you see a lot of that. <laughs> so, okay, we left, let's call it Aix-en-Provence, we left there uh, and came home. Yeah, I moved back, I think it was the end of uh, 2012. Okay, and you were immediately on the I'm going to do something myself train. So, interestingly, I'd, um, I'd been blogging while I was away, I was food blogging, and I also learnt cheese making. Nice. So, I was, you know, I had this cheese blog and everything. <laughs> and really? I was, um, I, I even considered setting up a, a cheese making business yeah. in Australia. But what I really wanted to do was make a difference. Mm-hmm. And cheese making wasn't going to do that like a, a, a company that creates sugar free foods would. So you need to have a little bit more of a background to get to this point, I suppose. Yeah. Um, when I, around, yeah, around that time, I'd really started looking at my own diet, right? So I'd turned 30. Oh, okay, I don't want to become a type 2 diabetic. I really need to be careful with the carbs and the sugars. But like most people do when they try to reduce sugar, they do all the wrong things. So 
back then there weren't a lot of options anyway in terms of you know foods you can get on the go that didn't have a lot of sugar mm-hmm. but I started trying to cut out sugar and I was eating all these nasty artificial sweeteners so all you know yeah. Diet Coke, Coke Zero, Aspartame, yes. Sucralose, like all just the really – I didn't know that there was really a difference. So I was constantly eating all these sugar-free products, consuming a lot of chemical and synthetic sweeteners, and my health got worse. Right. And all of a sudden I just kept, kept – I couldn't control my weight and my metabolism was going crazy and I was living on 1,000 calories a day and, and still barely managing to maintain my weight. So I got all these blood tests done. They said, you're insulin resistant. And they said that's one step away from being a type 2 diabetic. And I was like, well, how's that possible? I'm trying to do all the right things and barely eating carbs and not eating sugar. I thought, I must be doing something wrong. I've got to to just undo this. So I thought, I'm just going to cut out all this crap that I'm eating that I don't fully understand. And I'm just going to go back to basics. And the only sweeteners I'm going to eat are just, you know, really natural plant-based ones like stevia, for example. Yep. So stevia is okay? Well, yes, it is. And I've kind of proven that through my own experience that's that's my belief yep so i started with fasting um insulin levels of 10 which is quite high after four weeks of just cutting out all that crap and only eating natural sweeteners it went back down to two <laughs> and then all of a sudden my health started improving and i was normal again yeah. so that was really interesting because i became my own sort of guinea pig i suppose and i really learned it's really important to eat really natural sweeteners that your body knows what to do with and not they're not sending foreign signals to your, to your brain and what actually happens with insulin is that what I – and what I believe was happening with me is that when you're eating these synthetic sweeteners, it's sending a signal to your brain it's saying you're about to have this really – there's this really high sweetness level coming in. You're about to have a high glucose load. Right. So your blood you, – you, you secrete insulin. Yeah. But then the sugar never comes. So, so therefore – So your insulin levels remain elevated. Right. And, wh- and the consequence of that is putting on weight? Well, yeah, it messes with everything. It yeah. messes your metabolism, right? So, you, And then you're basically turning yourself into a pre-diabetic right. without meaning to. <laughs> due to in the main manufactured product? Pardon? Due, due to the acquisition of eating foods which are which have gone through a factory. I mean, is that the core reason? So if I just had a, if I had an all-natural diet, or if you had an all-natural diet, would you be would you be fine? I think it's just really important to be aware of what you're replacing sugar with. Okay. Okay. So help me with that. And then that that's where it gets complicated. So it, look, it's complicated, but it's also simple once you sort of once you understand. So and it, like the lab, you know, synthetic sweeteners, right? Aspartame, sucralose, things, things that don't really exist in nature is what you want to avoid. That's my philosophy. Yeah. And that's what we've carried through the business, and we're very strict about what you know we use and we won't use in products. Okay. So you obviously did some experiments. So at what point did you decide, okay, this is the this is the route that I'm going to take, as in I'm going to reduce or no, non-sugar, and you then had to get on get in the kitchen, so to speak, I imagine, in order to work out what the products would look like and what, how they would taste, and that that must have taken a huge amount of work. Yeah, it was it was a lot of experimentation because it was a path untravelled, I suppose. You mm-hmm. know, there wasn't a book that I could look up to find out how to formulate these products. Um, a friend of mine at the time challenged me to create a healthy donut. <laughs> good idea. No, and that's not a bad idea, that's actually. That's a really good idea. That's not a bad idea. Let me give that a go. And, uh, well, can I put another word in there? A healthy, tasty donut. Yeah, well, I've, I've, that was that was the challenge. It's yeah. got to taste good, otherwise what's the point? Exactly. So and tell us, did you do that? I did. Mm. So, so, so I started coming up with this range of, of donuts that were really low carbohydrate, super low in sugar, 
And they tasted really awesome. And then I had to figure out how to commercialise it and making it on an industrial scale and then how to get it distributed and, you know, the supply chain. It was a learning curve. So that was your first item? That was our first product. That's, that's very right. clever. That's very, very clever. And it was buzzworthy, right? Yeah. So they developed a cult following quite quickly, these products. Yeah. It was really exciting. <laughs> yes. Everyone started to know what Noshi stood for. Yeah. You know, and how our philosophy and, you know, that, that products taste good and that you know, they're surprisingly good because most people go in with very low expectations. Yes, yes. So that was the beginning. <laughs> yeah, okay. The donut. The donut. So, what, so then you thought, okay, so what next? So donut was followed by? We, um, so, so the donuts did, you know, we started distributing them through the independent retail channels and then we got them into Woolworths Metro stores and they started flying off the shelves, like almost 200 units per store per week in, in these, you know... So good. Yeah, in these high-volume locations, you know, in, in the retail trade, et cetera, it did really well. So we uh, eventually got the products ranged in Woolworths supermarkets and, and, then, we, and then we looked at baking mixes category. Dusty old boring category. Oh my goodness! It was just baking full, mixes. Yeah, it was just boring and full sugar. You know. Are there any sales? There's in baking nothing mix? healthy there. No, there's nothing. So Betty Crocker, that sort of thing. Yes, right? that's what it was. And that hasn't really changed. I would have uh, white really. wings. White no wings. No one was innovating, and it was nothing healthy there at all. But you know, and I, and I suppose the inspiration from for the, for the business was looking back to family events and birthdays and celebrations. What happens when the cake comes out? Mm. People can't eat it if you're not eating sugar. So we developed these these cakes that people could make at home based on baking mixes. Okay, so you you provide the baking mix. So what do I then have to do in order to make one of your uh, one of your cakes? Well, we, you just add you know the egg and milk yeah. and butter, yeah. and we did all the hard part, you know, in terms of replacing the sugar and making it functional, and making it taste awesome. So How that's really hard to do at home. Because the idea of baking, mean, see, I think I'm fascinated by that because I'm going baking mix. I mean, who does that anyway? So presumably there was a market. Oh, there's a lot of baking mixes out there. A lot of people don't scratch bake. Really? Yeah. I'm lucky, aren't I? I come from a scratch bake territory, right? So so do, so do I. My, yeah. my mother was always baking from scratch. Right. That's probably how I knew how to create these products. You know, that, that helped. Mm-hmm. Um, nat- natural talent for baking. But so, so baking mix is not a huge volume category, but it was a great foot in the door, right? And then yeah. we were able to show the supermarkets, you know, 82% of the people that bought them had not shopped down that aisle yeah. in a year or more. Oh. So there was nothing healthy there for them. So this is the trick, is it yeah. not? So we're bringing all these new uh, lapsed and new users to back to the category. So And that's, that's how it all began from there. And then, you know, we were able to prove that category by category that – you know, these low and reduced sugar products we're making, bringing users back in because we're finally offering them what they wanted. I just think this is awesome. So I, so now my reading tells me you started a science degree but then didn't finish it. Yeah. And so presume, was that in food science, in that ter- or specifically yeah, food? Yeah, that's, that's right. So when, when I finished school, I wanted to be a scientist. So I started science at UNSW. And okay. I, I didn't end up finishing that degree because I was just so creative. Yeah. I was way more of a creative person. Yeah. And, you know, all the physics and maths and chemistry, I was like, oh, this isn't for me. I don't think I can get through four years of this. I need to create something. So then you did marketing? Yeah, so I did VizCom. Okay, great. Yeah. And did you enjoy that? I did. Yeah? It was definitely more me. I felt like I was working with my strengths rather than against them. Mm-hmm. And was it the final year that everything came together for you? Um, I think in the final year I realised I, I wasn't going to be a graphic designer. Right. That wasn't my path in life. But I was happy to have the skills. Totally. 
And so I worked in agencies and communications and marketing and media, as you know, yeah. and, you know, it still took me on a path. Yeah, and the, presumably the skills that you learned at age, even in Paris for six months at Grey, presumably those skills have been worth useful as you've gone about creating your own brand. Oh, absolutely. I want to, yeah. I want to know absolutely. about your brand, let's call it your brand philosophy. Brand's right. a big thing. Right, you know, talk to me about that. A lot of people have got great ideas, but if they can't manifest that into a brand that's lovable, that people can associate with and looks great and, and talks in the right way and yeah. all, all of those things, and, you know, it, it's really difficult. So I think that, that that's been really helpful for me, but I didn't do it on my own. I was lucky to have met my, my now husband around about the time I started the business. Right. And he also helped with branding. Okay, good. So, and he's been part of that branding journey since day one. Well, so. if that's your thing, it's hard not to be, I mean, given that we're, you know, having a conversation by a fireplace, it's hard not to talk <laughs> about brands, right? Brands are cool. Uh, it, so the storyline, the storyline behind a brand is very important, the storytelling with brands. So do you, do you use your, the packaging to give the brand depth? I think, I think the packaging and the brand and the name needs to tell the consumer straight away what you're about and what you stand for. Yep. So, and do you, what do you think of that? Do you think our packaging, packaging does that? Very much so. And I and the name's good too. Right? So The name's very important. Yeah. So, <laughs> I presume, so have you ever had those times in life, um, which has happened to me often, when you go, oh, I wish I hadn't called it that, you know? So Never. <laughs> really? I'm so happy with the name. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, a friend of mine at the time, he was a trademark lawyer, Started experimenting with some really boring expected names and asking him to do trademark like searches, like you know, sort of goodies, food brands, and just boring things like that. Right. And he's like, "You need to come up with something unique." Yes. Is that right? Yes. Right, I will. You're right. Yeah. Okay. And they were right. So <laughs> tried all sorts of things. I had brand naming workshops with a bunch of friends, and you know, we did. We went through all the different paths that you can take in terms of how to find a name. We ne- didn't come up with the name on that day. No. Okay. Well, that can happen. Yeah. I mean, it, it was still useful starting point but in the end I just sort of sat down with the coffee at the beach with my now husband yeah. and we sat there and brainstormed I started writing words together no yeah. sugar no sugar and then uh. all of a sudden it came to me all love no sugar mm. I wrote it next to these two words no sugar and I was like hang on there's a word here yeah and when I wrote the tagline with it it just came together it just made sense and 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 instantly went straight onto the domain registry, checked that it was available, and? checked the trademark that was available, and registered on the spot. Fantastic! And we just knew that that was the name. So how long ago? How long ago was that? Oh, that would have been twenty thirteen, I think. Twenty okay. no, must have been twenty. Yeah, it would have been twenty thirteen. Okay, so you're coming up yeah. to the tenth birthday. Yeah. Not, not that far Can't away. Can't believe it. Okay, and you've presumably you've had well, you're at thirty million. Let's call it thirty. So what's tell us about your growth path? So donut first. So let's call it over 10 years. I know it's not quite 10 years, which is even more impressive. So did you, have you doubled every year? Oh, look, the first few years was obviously slow, right, because we were kind of ahead of our time. Yeah. You know, you take 18 months to develop the product, get it to market, figure out how to distribute it, get some sales happening. It took us a while to get traction in the major retailers and prove to them that there was a market for low-sugar food. And, you know, that all took time, being first mover. Yep. You need to have first mover advantage, but it's the hard path. Exactly. So 
You got to be very persuasive. Yeah. How do you reckon you went it, with that? It, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of resilience <laughs> to get through those first. I few reckon years. that you would have won a lot of argue, a lot of discussions, Rachel. I'm pretty persuasive. Person. Yeah, totally. That's a big. That, but that is a big part of you've, being successful. You've got to understand how to read people. Yeah. And and honestly, business is relationships. At the end of the day. Now, maybe the word I hate more than any other word in the whole of the English language is no. How many no? How many no's do you reckon you got in your startup path? I've never, never counted them, but yeah, definitely a few no's. Yeah, and and, and, and you got to just keep you got to pick yourself up and keep going. Yeah, if you really believe in it, you you really have to just keep going. So tell me, people about do give up too easily. They do, right? Tell me about the competitive context. So you 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 are up against global food manufacturers mm. in that aisle. Um, and yeah, because we d- we're not in health, right? No. We purposely are not in the health food aisle. We, we always wanted this brand to be – I always wanted this brand to be a mainstream brand. It's something for everyone. It's not, you know, a whole foods, hippie it. brand. It's not a weight management brand. It's a brand for everyone, whether you're diabetic or you're not or you just want to eat better or reduce sugar. This is a brand that we want – it's for everyone. Yeah, right. So that's part of the smart – That's part of the smartness of what you're doing is that you're mainstream, you're in the aisle, you're up against all the competitors, like – who are global in nature. So they they must have tried to buy you. We've had a few offers. As can't say too much. <laughs> as you should. That's awesome. No, but it had been But we've still got so much to right, do. Yeah, but if you have a business that people want to buy, that is a great sign that you're doing you know, that you're creating value. Absolutely. Um, and presumably it's great validation, of course. Indeed. And presumably they were global, those that wanted to buy you. Mm. So now are they trying to come after you in a different way? Given that you've said no, because you've got more to do, you've got a you've got a big brand to build. Um, so are they trying to find another way to to attack? Look, there's a lot of emulation happening, and um, people say we should be flattered, but maybe I find it a bit frustrating. Makes it tough, right? <laughs> yeah, because obviously when you're first mover, you 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 do the, the tough job because you prove you know you take the risks, you invest in that yep. in that risk. To prove that there's a market for something and then everyone else comes along and says, great, this is working, let's jump on the bandwagon. Okay, so here we are in the... Um, but they never do it as well as us. No, exactly. And so we'll always do it differently. Early days, third decade of the century, very early days. What is... Building a consumer brand, fast-moving consumer good, consumer brand building in 2020s is different to what it was when we... Well, certainly when I was in started in the business... Um, and I'm thinking different to when you started the business. So the core the core proposition is very strong, but how do you market it in the 2020s? So I think we should go back to pre-2020s because really when the brand was being built was social media early days mm-hmm. and we were really lucky because I jumped on that. And I harnessed the power of social media and it was relatively free. Yeah. Slash very cost effective back then. Yeah. So we, we were able to build a really big following on social media quite quickly. Um, I taught, you know, at the time I was able to run our own Facebook up marketing campaigns before it got really complicated. I couldn't do it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, you've got people helping you with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't do it now. It's way more complicated than it used to be. But, you know, we, we really harnessed the power of social and, and networking. And our consumers loved our brand so much they did the marketing for us. Yes. And it was so powerful back then that, you know, we, for example, when we launched in Woolworths Metro, 
I'd put a geographically targeted ads up on Facebook targeting a, you know, say five, ten yeah. um, square kilometre radius of that store. How good. And it was honestly within 24 hours the sales were doubled yeah. when the ads were switched on. That's yeah. how effective it was back then. Yeah. So I think we are quite lucky that it was cost effective and, and we were able to build our audience quite quickly. Now it's really hard to build an audience on, on Instagram, for example. Yeah, so how do you do it now? Time. I mean, because, well, part of the dilemma... I don't know, if you haven't done it by now, it's pretty hard to right. get to 100,000, for example. Right, so what part of the dilemma that, you, you know, that everyone has, you know, that's got a brand, a consumer brand that's in the supermarket aisle, the supermarket wants trade money. So oh, yeah, a lot of it. Right, so you, you are forever in this sort of dilemma that... I've got a dollar. Am I going to use that dollar for the long term to build my brand or am I going to use it for trade spend? And this is one of the interesting dynamics, I think, for all consumer products in Australia. How do I deal with that trade pressure versus making sure that I'm building brand and therefore building margin? Well, you've, you've got to try and you have, you've obviously got to accept that you've, you're going to have trade spend and you've got to try and use your trade spend wisely so that you're also building brand awareness at the same time. Right. Trade spend's not going to go away. It's part of doing business. You've got to factor that into your P and L. Yep. So make the most of it. Okay, and t- and <laughs> and, fi- and find out you know which uh, which kinds of media, for example, are going to work best for you. So you know, is that in you know Woolies Fresh or the Coles magazine, for example? Is that aisle fins? Is that off locations? Like how how do you just try and make the most of that? You have to have trade spend. That's not going to change. So are yeah. you? So I think maybe that's about that's about a reframe that you've just articulated that. You reframe trade trade spend as trade media, and that is in fact mainstream media. I mean, if you mm-hmm. if you are on the you know the radio at a, in a Woolworths, and they're talking about your brand, that's advertising, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. maybe it's a bit of a reframe that I need to do. That there is long term in my mind, long term brand building is like that's traditional media, and short term trade stuff that's sort of you know what in a brochure. But I'm wrong. That's how you've got to think about it. I mean, it was a. It was hard for me to get my head around that too. I'll never forget the very first um, off-invoice deduction we had <laughs> for a half-page ad. I think it was oh. $36,000 right. and we just sold our first couple of pallets of baking mix and I almost died. And they took money off you? Straight off the remittance. <laughs> and I didn't realise it was going straight <laughs> off the remittance. Yeah. And I called them and I said, but are you going to send us a bill or something that we could pay with terms? No, it doesn't work like that. Right. So yeah, it was it was a rude shock. I was, yeah. oh. That's just how it works. Yeah, that's right. So make the most of it. It's not going away. It's part of doing business with the major accounts. Okay, so you're growing a lot. Um, you know, I, I want to know what our trade spend bills look like now. Uh, no, it's yeah. okay. You don't need. To, oh, well, you don't need to tell me. <laughs> I but can't I'm, share that anyway. I'm assuming it's big. Right. Well, that's good. That's a sign that you're going really well. Big. And the fact that the fact that you are in a in a position. To be able to pay the trade that sort of money means that they're going to support you. That's right. So what's next? And they want to know that you're supporting your, your initiatives and your new products too, which is fair right. enough. So is that so? Exclusive rights to various retailers that must be part of what you'll do. I'll build a new product, and you can be in you know X market for you know X amount of time, um, uh, and maybe you can trade off. Do you trade off exclusivity for trade spend? Um. Well, they want exclusivity and they want the spend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> trade spend's part. I mean, trade spend's not going away. Like no. I said, it's all a negotiation. Um, exclusivity, yeah, sometimes there's a six-month head start for a particular retailer who supports you to get a product to market quickly. So, you know, we've got a great relationship with the retailers now. Of course. 
um, and we work together on innovation to bring innovation to market. So what's next on that front? <sighs> There's something very exciting coming out next ice month cream. being September. No, it's not ice cream. Okay. It's, way, it's actually probably, I think, way more exciting than that. More exciting than ice yes, cream? Yes, Because I think, I think the better for your ice cream's done, it's Dash. Is it? I think it has. Personally. Okay. I just Well, I don't know. I'm trying to think. This there's, a lo- there's a lot of products out there now. Now, I've got a fructose problem. Okay. Does that mean you're good for me? Yes. Yeah, I would have thought so. Yes. That's exciting. There's, there's so what's this new product that I can are get? You, you, so, you can't, so you can't eat any fructose at all? Or so it's a problem. Fructose intolerance? Yeah. I mean, even if, even if I had a jelly snake, mm. I wouldn't feel great. It's oh. onion and it's garlic and I haven't had a can of Coke for 10 years, for God's sake. So, okay, so you can't eat uh, short chain... Is that what it is? Fibers. Okay, I think I, that, that's a separate conversation. We need to talk more about this. We don't need to do yeah. that. Okay. that that's <laughs> it. We've got another podcast called, you know, Your Healthy Gut, which, of course, has become a trend. I mean, people yeah. now realise that the gut is pretty important. It's your second brain, in fact. Are you on low FODMAP? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it does work. Yes. Anyway, we There's should Some move people on. with those issues, yes. So, those issues, I suppose it is an issue. So, so 30 million? So, you, you want to be 60 at least. So how? Give us a timeline. Come on, you're we'll, ambitious. We'll definitely be there within three years. Three years, awesome. So a hundred million dollar business in six, five, five years. For sure. I like the sound. And of I that. don't think that's going to be coming just from Australia either. Uh, well, that's my next question. So I, I built this this proposition scalable in more markets in Australia. A lot of countries need low sugar foods. It's, it's an issue everywhere. Totally. Everyone so and everyone wants to be able to eat sweet food without it affecting them. <laughs> so. Okay, we're going to build a big brand here. This is exciting. Now, is the IP the recipe? The IP is a combination of formulation uh-huh. and process. Great. Yes. So, are you? So, let's say we're going to go to um, South America. Mm-hmm. Would you go there and sell them already manufactured products? Would you find someone to manufacture it there? Would you sell the recipe? No, we'd find someone to manufacture there locally, okay. yeah. And um, so, we, yeah, we've obviously got all the IP. All the IP is kept in house. We develop everything in house. It's never developed by a contract manufacturer. And so, and you've got um, food scientists. Have you have you yes. moved to that level in terms yeah, of? Yeah, yeah. How many people have you got working for you? Uh, currently eighteen. And you got thirty million bucks on eighteen. That's good. <laughs> but. Think of all the people we employ indirectly through our contract manufacturers. So I couldn't quantify that number, but yeah. So our, our team in house is you know sales, marketing, product development, logistics, supply chain, and management. Good. Yeah. So you are a great entrepreneur. There's no question that that's already very true, and it's only you've only just started. So young entrepreneurs, let's you know give them some tips. Oh, where to start? You know, I I, I think. Probably one of the most the biggest influences for me was a book that I read before, well before starting this business, called The Luck Factor. Have you heard of it? I haven't, but I already like it. And it was everything I kind of already knew, but some you know a psychologist actually went out there and did research, right? And it and it it's really about he he interviewed a bunch of people, hundreds of people that believe they're lucky in life, and hundreds of people that believe they're unlucky in life, and he found common traits between them. Tell. And so the, the, the lucky people do different things and have a different mindset to the unlucky people. And, it, and so <laughs> I can't give you all the secrets. You've got to go read it. But, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's about things like 
walking into a situation and you walk in expecting a good outcome. Right. Not walking in going, oh, God, no, how is this going to go? Here I go again. Yep. Failure is just yeah. around the corner. So you walk in with expecting a good outcome. You maintain a broad network socially, you know, because it's all about connections and contacts. And like I said before, business is relationships. Yeah. Um, you're open to new experiences. Um, you're willing to take risks and you roll up your sleeves and you get things done. You don't give up easily. Right. So you can make your own luck to an extent. I'm a big believer in that. I agree with you. <laughs> I uh, thoroughly agree with you. So now you have done an incredible job um, at creating a brand, which I think it's, it's on its way to fame. Brand fame is something that I've always believed in. I just wanted to get your perspective on if I said to you that um, brand fame should be your ultimate ambition, how does that sit with you? My personal term for that is brand love. Okay. So are, we to- are we probably talking about the same thing though, right? Yeah, pro- well, the, yes. Does brand, ca- does brand fame come from brand love? Um, you would probably be love will get you to fame. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think ultimately... Because the love is, is a consumer's emotion towards the yes. brand, the connection to it, yeah. which is in turn what makes it famous. Yeah, and the fame in the end is... You can actually put a number against fame. You know, so yeah. Okay, you know, so you can quantify that. Yeah. yeah. In that, so what you and I might decide is that spontaneous brand awareness is the only number that matters. Yeah. So unprompted brand awareness is the only, is the only number that matters. Your brand... Um, if you went from 10% of your target audience having spontaneous brand awareness, which is different to prompted, of course, mm. and all of a sudden it's 90, 90%, then you are famous. Okay, got it. <laughs> right? Yep. And uh, I've got a feeling that you are going to make that happen for your brand. Well, that's certainly our ambition over the next 24 months is to build our prompted and unprompted brand awareness. Fantastic. That is our number one ambition because we are – the lower, the largest, sorry, low sugar brand by size, by revenue yeah. and we're across category. But yeah. brand awareness is something that we really want to amplify now. Well, I know you're going to succeed. There's just no doubt. We've only just met, but I'm pretty convinced that it's going, well, it's obviously Thank already you. going wonderfully well. Um, I look forward to finding out more about your success and I'm sure that we will hear about you often. Um, Rachel, thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking to you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been great chatting to you on the Sayers Conversations. Thanks for keeping me warm by the fire.